this is another episode of Ross Growth Podcast. On this podcast, I'm interviewing only top CEOs and founders of tech community to understand their psychology behind their business success, to dig into their mindset, their work, career, their life, and really figure out what drives them, how do they think, how do they persevere and go through challenges, what kind of books they read, what kind of morning evening routines they have. And the purpose of that is to deliver insights to people like you who want to chase their dreams and get better every single day. So on today's episode, I'm talking to Nick Van Vinderborg, who is the CEO of a company called Wrangle.io. I'm excited to share this interview with you all today. I'm here with Nick Van Vinderborg, the founder and the CEO of Wrangle.io, a Toronto-based digital transformation consultancy that builds web application for Fortune 500 companies. Nick, thanks so much for joining me here today. Thanks for having me here. Now, before I jump into your incredible growth of the company, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on um, your career. And specifically, you started being a developer, uh, and then you you did a little bit of work in product marketing. Um, What was it like, and then what did you learn, and how you applied it uh, after, later? Uh, Sure. So um, in my career, I started off actually in uh, engineering. Uh, So I worked for a co-op term at IBM as as an engineering sort of co-op. And that was a really interesting time because it was the second wave of total quality management in the manufacturing industry. And uh, Six Sigma, which was something that uh, Motorola ran, it was going through... Um, the industry, and it was about supply chain and, and value streams. It was actually lean manufacturing, but they weren't calling it at that point, right? So they were taking some of the uh, Japanese supply chain um, things, and they were sort of looking at it as a, uh, a quality management program. Um, when I was uh, back in school, I started doing development work to sort of pay the bills, and uh, I worked for a financial services firm, and I worked for a Japanese uh, gaming startup, and I, you know, taught myself how to program, and then started working full time uh, for a Windows uh, desktop application company, and then the internet happened, and that was super exciting. So I quit that job and started uh, my first company, which was a web development consultancy, right. um, and I did that for about a year, doing small projects in the early days of of the internet. Netscape was the you know the, the primary browser, yeah. and um, from that I ended up getting a couple of other jobs, and then I taught a class um, because I was doing some consulting work, some contract work, and some teaching, and I taught a Java programming class. Java mm-hmm. was a new thing, and one of the students she went to work for a recruiting firm and threw my name into their uh, to the recruiter. There was a U.S. enterprise software company that was looking to hire uh, sales consultants. So, um, And that sounded interesting because I always had the idea that I wanted to be able to you know, start and build a company, but I knew tech. I didn't know marketing. I didn't know sales. So right. I thought, wow, this is a great opportunity to grow and to learn. So I ended up taking that job, and I worked for that company all together for about eight years. And uh, a company was called PTC, and Mm. I did a lot of sort of development work, but it was also all client-facing, a lot of consulting, a lot of demos, a lot of workflow, um, knowledge management, content management, business process re-engineering, and all again in the, uh, the engineering and manufacturing space 
which was evolving through, you know, global supply chains and uh, different practices. So eight years there, where I, I alternated between being a sales consultant and a solution architect, gave me the foundation for moving into product management. So I took a job as a product manager for a Toronto-based company that wanted to move into enterprise software, which mm-hmm. was my forte. I'd spent eight years in the space. And uh, it turned out that my real passion was for marketing because mm-hmm. I ended up you know, in, in that role doing a lot of the go-to-market strategy, a lot of the um, market strategy analysis. I spent two years reading everything I could on marketing and sort of had my marketing mm-hmm. education mm-hmm. in that product management, product uh, marketing role. Self-taught and you learned as you went. Yeah. So there was, um, uh, you know, two writers, uh, Al Reese and Jack Trout. They wrote a book called Positioning. That was very foundational in how you think about markets from a psychology perspective because people have to be able to notice you and you have to be differentiated And they made the point, it's better to be a big fish in a small pond. And everything has to be about the white space in a market. And, um, you know, that was more recently described as blue ocean strategy Mm -hmm. by quite a a famous popular book. Um, But I thought of it as positioning. And uh, I read Crossing the Chasm, which was about how new markets sort of build and early adopters and the sort of psychographics of sort of uh, markets and and buying uh, people. And uh, it's just a number of other books that really sort of uh, influenced me. I spent more time on the marketing side. I spent a lot of time traveling the clients. And then I tried to start a cloud-based company. Didn't quite work out. Didn't have the right product market fit. Then I went back to a product marketing role, which was a lot of marketing. Mm -hmm. And then I saw what was happening in the industry with JavaScript and uh, my prior um, technology passion was Ruby on Rails when it came out. Mm-hmm. It was actually Ruby, and then Ruby on Rails came out, and I like dynamic languages. Right. In my enterprise architecture role, we did a lot of JavaScript, so I knew JavaScript uh, as well as almost anyone. I had been using it uh, since um, 1997, and uh, I'd been sort of using it on the back end. In uh, 1998, there mm-hmm. was a, a product called Netscape Livewire, so when I saw Angular and uh, HTML5, I saw that as being a tipping point in the market of how web applications are built. And I thought, well, that's just starting to happen now. So I modeled Wrangle after the Ruby on Rails boutique consultancies. So um, HashRocket, ThoughtBot, uh, Pivotal Labs, mm-hmm. um, even um, you know ThoughtWorks. Um, they adopted a lot of Ruby uh, as a dynamic language for enterprise solutions. And I applied everything that I'd learned in marketing. So I took principles of positioning and crossing the chasm and building a brand and being able to establish thought leadership and an early foothold in a new market by really focusing on adding value to the market. Mm -hmm. So similar to all those companies that were really community driven and uh, reflected the value of the the community and helped build that value wrangle was right from the start agile only javascript only modern javascript only and um, really focused on creating value for our clients and for the community with no thought about it being uh, you know really profit driven but purpose-driven. It was very specific, too. Like, when I've seen, when I came across Wrangle before, years ago, it was very, it, it was, you did one thing. 
and it wasn't like a lot of agencies would do a ton of different things and god knows how do they do that but you did this is what we do and that's it it was very it, it was it, it stood out yeah and it was surprising to a lot of people too because i would go um and one of the things that i'd learned in you know my 25 years in business and, and technology up to that point is that uh and there's a meetup that captures this quite nicely it's it's both the hacking and the hustling and i got out there like i, I started wrangle and i told my wife i had to go out three nights a week and, and network because i also didn't really know anybody in the toronto tech community because most of my work was in the united states in the enterprise software space i spent uh five years living stateside in in various parts of my uh, my career so with that um i just went out and i talked to everyone and part of it was interesting because I originally got interested in uh, JavaScript on the front end. I didn't understand that it was going to become a very popular back-end technology. And it was at Startup Drinks where I was chatting with someone mm -hmm. and uh, the person said something quite funny. It's like, Ruby on Rails is so last year, everybody's using Node. And I'm like, well, interesting, mm -hmm. what, what's Node? Mm -hmm. Because at that point, I hadn't, uh, yeah, I'd been working in a different stack and I was only looking at the front end. And uh, as soon as I saw that, I thought, okay, full-stack JavaScript. That's, that's our, mm -hmm. our purpose because this is going to revolutionize how applications are built. This is going to be used by everyone, startups and uh, banks and agencies. And um, so that was really that, that focus. And the timing was right. The timing was perfect. If you actually look at the growth of uh, Google searches for AngularJS, it uh, really started to get traction in December 2012. It does its hockey stick inflection in May 2013, pretty much on the day that Wrangle was founded. So we are we started right at the moment that Angular started to hockey stick. Yeah, it's one of those things that determine and being very focused on one thing and uh, applying the principles that you learned. All those combined, they they really are a recipe of uh, building something really great as Wrangle became. But it's also, I find, what you just told me is that you had a specific vision. You wanted to build a company, and that's where you purposely chose to develop a skill set that you didn't quite have in sales and marketing and then applying it all together, which is super important of, in being a founder and being a CEO, not just knowing how to do, an engineer, do engineering, but knowing how to sell and know how to market, position the product. Yeah. Wrangle has really grown dramatically, 40% growth uh, year over year. You're at 280 people, probably past that point now. What are some of the set of set of principles that you follow and that you make sure that the company follows to keep that growth, to keep retaining great talent and uh, making sure everything works? Uh, principles, and it could be cultural, culturally or it could be um, other principles that you, uh, that you implement and then you reinforce. Yeah, um, some of them are surprisingly still very, very uh, consistent. And um, we, when we started, um, I wanted to do things that were useful to clients to to really focus on on again on the community because I really I love that about the Ruby on Rails community. All the companies that were sort of active in that space were as interested in the community as they were in, in building a business. And uh, they did a lot of open source work. They did a lot of contributions. They published openly what they did. Um, ThoughtBot published a whole sort of uh, manual of how they operated and thought and, and, and mm -hmm. how they worked. 
And so there was a lot of transparency there. And when I started Wrangle, there was some uh, amazing people in Toronto who worked for other agencies, and uh, they did the same. Like, it was so open and welcoming. It was really about creating value and, and building up tech in Toronto and solving business problems. So, you know, as we sort of worked with a small team, um, one of the funny things is I didn't actually hire anyone who was coming out of an existing job because I didn't really want to ruin anyone's life with my startup. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to run into a, a, a ton of really, really brilliant people. And the first six people who joined the company were all like amazing. And it was because they were really passionate about this and there really wasn't a market there yet. So Wrangle was the place to do the work. Mm-hmm. Our, uh, one of our first clients said that they had to hire us because every time they were about to hire someone, we hired them instead, and so they had no choice. I apologize, but then, then took the project. Um, so, you know, what is this, uh, is this delivering the most value to the client? Um, what would the open source leaders do in this area? So if we're sitting around and we're talking about commenting or if we're talking about punctuation, white space, semicolon placement, coding style, we would always go back to what is the best leading edge, but not bleeding edge industry practice. And what's production quality? What's what's sort of the best way of working? So functional programming, we started that right off the bat. Um, that was a couple of years before React started to make it more popular. And, um, you know, clean code concepts, um, test-driven development was built into Angular. It was, it was similar mm-hmm. to uh, Ruby on Rails. So there was a lot of similar philosophies there. So I think a lot of the Ruby on Rails ethos carried over into the Angular world and into Wrangle. So, you know, we can sort of credit uh, both right. those amazing uh, teams and groups for, for what they built. And, um, you know, commu- that community focus. Um, so trying to create value and publish. So everything we did, we, we put out there. And when we went to conferences, uh, because this is actually something I, I learned you know, from um, my marketing days and from um, looking at emerging markets, mm-hmm. we went brand first, yeah. not looking for leads because uh, we wanted to find people who wanted, you know, what we were offering. And uh, as a result, in the first two years, all of our business came in through talks and, and marketing and um, being found on the, on the web. It was Which is so unusual, uh, Nick, because like, a lot of founders, even now, they don't invest into marketing. Uh, they only focus on sales, and then they invest into marketing too late, whether they don't really focus on brand. And those companies that do focus on brand, like Drift, they have this extraordinary advantage where they all they do is top of the funnel, the con- give away a lot of value for free without expecting anything in return. So on paper, sounds like a weird idea because there's no ROI, but it actually isn't. Yeah, and uh, I was influenced actually a lot by uh, David Cancel. Um, when he was uh, building Performable, he uh, tweeted about the, uh, I think it's called The Four Steps to the Epiphany by Steve Blank, mm-hmm. which is the foundational material for Lean Startup. Eric Reese was in his class, and uh, it's that sort of um, model of, you know, not product development, but customer development, and, and that sort of looking into the market. Um that was extremely influential in, mm-hmm. in how we uh, worked as well. In the whole content marketing sort of world, right, that was such a big thing. Um, I actually had a, uh, a blog for a while called Test Driven Marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, the the uh, company that was hosting it went away, and I, I never bothered putting it back up. 
but the concept of using content marketing and marketing automation and thinking of a you know a revenue funnel not a sales funnel not a marketing funnel um was also very very influential and because mm-hmm. i'd worked in in that space and i'd implemented a couple of marketing automation tools and I was very focused on, on content and brand. And uh, so I was saying earlier, mm-hmm. you know, in one of my uh, jobs, I ended up taking over events and doing uh, events. And we would go to one event and, um, you know, the CEO was only looking for leads, which is great because yeah. you, you need leads. But our strategy was we were going to do a three-year investment. And because the first year they're going to see us once the second year they'll see us twice the third year you know they'll know who we are and that concept of multi-touch uh marketing Mm -hmm. and so we went in with that sort of you know if you're creating value if you're differentiated if you're in an emerging market and you focus on brand good things will happen but if you're if you're trying too hard and you're you're just looking for the immediate sort of uh, first order sort of lead then that you take the wrong business, you you build the wrong value proposition, and um, yeah. So that one thing, as in addition to a few mm-hmm. of the other things, was hugely uh, impactful for us because that accrues as well. Brand accrues, leads are one and done. Absolutely, no, totally. It makes it makes a big difference. How do you um, how do you share your knowledge and raise the game as the company grows? from six people to 10 people to 15 people to now over 280 people what is your your way to um, to communicate what you learn and then also to to encourage people to raise to keep raising their game that's um that's a great question so if i go back to uh year one um and from a scaling perspective i, I tell people there was never really an intent to uh, grow Wrangle to a certain size, but it was to evolve Wrangle to the opportunity that was available. So when we were five people, I decided to try to scale the company 10% a month because if I thought a month ahead, it made sense. And rather than sort of thinking about something abstract that's a year out, I could put all my energy into the the moment and keep everything balanced and manage risk and think about cash flow. And it was a very agile way of, of scaling a company. Mm-hmm. And it was very much based upon my ability to be in the market, sense the market, trust my gut, um, feel how the conversations were, feel how quickly we could build trust and uh, you know be able to close deals. And in our first 18 months, we closed something like 90% of our qualified leads because we were so specialized. One of the great things about stepping into a, a white space. Mm-hmm. The... Um, but it was not easy. Um, so I think in, in the first year, I took 10 days off, and that was the entire year, including Christmas and New Year's. And But it was it was yeah. you know quite uh, exciting. Like, yeah. I didn't burn out at all in year one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then year two, um, we had a few heuristics uh, that allowed uh, focus on uh, rapid execution. So some core, you mentioned principles. So now that some of this is coming back to me. Um, one of them came, I think, from... Uh, just a general consulting principle that I learned before, but that your average consulting rate should be three times your average salary because one third is for salary, you know, the other thirds for operations and the other third is, is margin. And, um, it makes a lot of sense and it actually holds up quite well. So Mm -hmm. as a fundamental, how you set rates, uh, the second one was 80% of the company billable 80% of the time. 
um, so that there's an investment in leadership, in management, in thinking about things. And so when we got to 10 people, I became non-billable. Right. Um, when we got to 20 people, Yuri, our CTO, became non-billable, along with a couple of other people. Um, we had our first marketing manager come on when we were seven people part-time. She became mm-hmm. full-time when we were around 20 people. So now we had like three and a half people who were non-billable um, at 20 people. And then when we got to 40 people and, you know, 30 people, mm-hmm. I hired my salesperson. 40 person, I hired, uh, at 40, I hired another salesperson and our head of HR. And um, then we added to the marketing team. And so we, we tried to keep that principle in place, and that mm-hmm. worked really, really well. We also pre-build for work, which I think I got that from ThoughtBot as, mm-hmm. a, uh, as, a, as a premise, yeah. and uh, two-week increments. Yeah. So, um, and most of our smaller clients were happy to do that. And uh, we had um, one uh, client who had been through a lot of startups, and he paid every invoice I sent him the minute he got it. Mm-hmm. And that was a, an amazing sort of lift from a cash flow perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so, sorry, back to your original question. As the yeah. company got bigger, um, by evolving the company and thinking through and, and moving responsibilities to different people and being able to invest in the, the things that needed to be done um, and having that great, you know, sort of initial uh, like-minded talent, um, we were able to scale and, and build a, a strong, robust culture. I heard a uh, talk at uh, Collision two years ago, which was the first 15. Mm-hmm. Your first 15 hires are what cement your culture. Absolutely, yeah. And that is so true. Like, if I think of, of sitting in that office, you know, with the first 15 people that we hired and uh, and, and sort of think about how that manifested, um, I can still feel all that energy from that group still in, in the company today. From a scaling perspective... Mm-hmm. The two challenges are once you're a little bit bigger, you can solve a bigger problem, which means that you need to add new capabilities. So we right. went from JavaScript, Scrum Masters, designers, and you know kept building out that capability. And uh, different types of clients, so different kinds of processes. And um, then you know different kind of organizational right. needs as you go through these sort of transitions. So we built out a, uh, a model where we divided the company into four different leagues where we had, you know, 20 people in each league. Um, it probably was 30. We probably did that around 100 people. And that was great for a while, but it created some other interesting challenges. And uh, so we've experimented with going to different models at mm-hmm. different times based upon what the need of, of the company right. was. So then we went to a program sort of lens, so running lean agile programs. And so we uh, changed back to a craft leadership and built a program discipline that is really focused on solving their, uh, the, the, the delivery challenges and maintaining delivery excellence. So you have these different uh, leads focused on different outcomes and um, that creates the sort of the constant sort of reinforcing mm-hmm. of the the core principles and practices totally nick i also was curious uh when you know when we have like services like Glassdoor that show pretty well the rating of the company and, and the approval rating of the ceo there's a ton of companies that grow real fast uh similar or maybe a little bit less than wrangle but their rating is a lot lower employees are not as happy they have they have to um, they have to work longer or there's run people in the management team or there's the pay is a lot lower than the market 
Um, and there's a ton of companies like that. Wrangle, on the other hand, uh, is growing really fast, but you maintain a very, very high satisfaction rate uh, in, in, from employees in the company. What are you doing differently or, or what are some of the things that you ensure that, obviously you focus on the customer, but how do you make sure the employees are as happy as they are? There's a, I guess that's a really complicated uh, question to answer because also at times you have the conflict between employee happiness and the, the goal, the mission of the company. Um, so you have to evolve the company and you have to make changes because you're 100 people and it's the wrong structure. And then you're 200 people and it's no longer the right structure. And, uh, and new structures are enabled by the great work that the prior structure did. So it's sort of a, it's almost a terribly sort of unfair thing because mm -hmm. all the great work has created this capability to be something else, but that demands a different structure. Right. Um, so that's always challenging, but if, if you stay focused on purpose, and I think Wrangle has been very, very sort of clear on its purpose and it's been um, helpful. Um, and then it's about the, that commitment to people and teams and our, our CTO, our sort of, he moved on, yeah. but um, he's as passionate about people and culture, if mm -hmm. not more so than technology. So that sort of real belief and commitment by your broader leadership team and that constant passion and thinking and, and focus on that. And then we hired some sort of great uh, lean agile thinkers and, and coaches who really understood team dynamics and mm -hmm. they coached up our next generation of leaders and and that was those leaders then would work with the teams and right. help facilitate you know that high performing team and meaningful work so there's a lot of different things but clear purpose clear principles and uh, leaders who really really care uh, about people and about uh, culture outcomes right um you are a very growth uh growth mindset oriented person how do you select the right people uh, at Wrangle and design a system t for them to keep learning. I mean, you mentioned the leaders, you mentioned the, the coaches that you have. Um, what are some of the things? I mean, obviously you have uh, a process of hiring them and uh, failure question that, Ted, that you're looking for resilience, but are there any specific things that, that you do to, to find that talent? Um, one thing is uh, because of our focus on community, and it's interesting. Uh, there's two types of people that seem to really resonate with what Wrangle is and what an agile sort of digital company that's focused on, on building useful things. It's uh, maker culture, so people who like to make things, and people who are really into community. So a lot of the people who come to us come to us because of our involvement in the community, and that's what got them interested in us. So there's already that sort of um, incoming sort of um, sense and our brand is built around a lot of that as well um, you know one of the the actual cool things um, that now you mentioned that what occurred to me I think when we were about 30 people that one of the reasons that I felt we could continue to scale is that our our client brand our hiring brand were the same mm -hmm. right so we were selling to our clients exactly who we were right. um, to help them do the kind of things that we did in the same kind of way. And people wanted to join us because, so people want to join us and people want to hire us for the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. So having a symmetrical brand promise is, um, is, is incredible 
uh, from a uh, ability to maintain stability when you grow. And the other aspect of it, and I mentioned, you mentioned Glassdoor, and you know that goes up and down. And I yep. can appreciate um, some companies. You you have it's hard to build a business and right. and uh, all of that. But having a symmetrical brand promise, having a purpose, you know, even when I did misstep and I did things that didn't really work out, and there was some flare-ups or confusion or challenges, um, that original core sort of culture and energy has proven to be remarkably resilient, no matter how uh, clumsy I can be at times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all about that, the system that supports all of it. I've heard from David Council, I, I mean, I'm also a big fan, that he mentioned about, he talked about hiring on a podcast, and he said that uh, a lot of people who happen to be 10Xers, 100Xers, they all have crappy resumes. They all have some gaps or something wrong if you look on it on paper. I was curious to hear your experience. What was it like for you? You hired a lot of people. Uh, and how, was there anything, was there a pattern with people who became extremely high performance later? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so early on, we had a philosophy of it's about being able to do the job, not about your education or your background. So we never had degree requirements. We hired a 17-year-old once, absolutely phenomenal talent. Um, we hired an 18-year-old. So at one point, it was a, a bit unfortunate because, you know, they couldn't go to some of the Wrangell mm -hmm. sort of events. And um, But it was amazing, and they, yeah. they were so talented. Um, the people who are self-taught, the people who went to another discipline like fine arts and then became programmers, um, we interview and uh, hire with equal enthusiasm anybody who really wants to you know, work here, who shares our values, and who has the ability to do the work at the level that we need to, to do the work. And that's been, I think, a, a big part of it. Like mm -hmm. there's a uh, – someone – mentioned that, uh, that we, we sort of love quirky at Wrangell and we embrace it and, you know, we embrace diversity and, and inclusion and um, we try to create a, a great place for everybody to work. And I think that's really cool. I hadn't heard that, that mm -hmm. comment and I can definitely see that as being, you know, that's a uh, maybe part of our, our secret is that uh, we, we don't, you know, we look beyond the, the paper. Because I, it, it just uh, struck me because I've seen people in, in college uh, with, with the ones that I w went with uh, and people who were phenomenal. They And I've seen their resume. It looks pretty crappy. If, if you put it through any system or even HR reads it, it's not great. But I know that person is, is unbelievably smart and you would never tell. You would never ever tell if you just look on paper. And that, uh, what David was said, I was like, wow, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, that's really cool. A lot of people talk about passion. Everybody tosses the word. Some people believe that you have to find your passion. And there are some other people that believe that you have to build your passion. You can't just find it. It doesn't really exist. You have to actually build it. There's a process. You start doing something. You work super hard on that. And then it becomes a passion. What's your perspective? When you do something and it's challenging, uh, you really... And you feel like you're learning. So that's uh, the book by uh, Daniel Pink, Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, intrinsic motivation comes out of having stretch goals, um, autonomy, the ability for self-mastery. 
And uh, those are really interesting because there's something about our brain that's very, very goal-centered. So if it feels like it's a goal and it's a goal that we want um, intrinsically, then we will have passion. If we're doing it because we're told to do it, if we're doing it because we're paid to do it, um, that doesn't work so well. They've done studies with kindergarten kids, and when they pay them to paint, they actually destroy their their intrinsic motivation to paint. It's actually rather terrifying. Um, And so, but in other cases, you know, you get to play at a, uh, you you get to, to start, seeing self-mastery and you you can start having autonomy because you're you're more experienced and you can sort of go after more interesting problems because you've built that skill set and so the passion can emerge out of that like i actually have a real passion for finance and accounting now because mm-hmm. i understand that you know how valuable it is from a business perspective you know how much uh, creativity and art actually go into those practices and how there's this beautiful sort of world of, of truth and understanding and, you know, um, you know, keeping all these businesses working and having a global economy. You know, that's all running through finance and accounting practices. It's actually a pretty amazing uh, human accomplishment. And uh, I had zero passion for it before. Mm. I didn't really understand it. It felt like it wasn't something that was really relevant to me. Uh, but now that I know it and I've seen it, so I've, I say I've built that passion, yeah. interestingly, in the last few years. Right. I wanted to speak about challenges. Uh, I've, I'm sure you had a ton on the way and uh, a lot of things probably didn't work. When you have a challenge, uh, either it's in, in, let's say it's in business and sometimes it doesn't work, you try it a couple of times, how do you approach that? any questions that you specifically ask or seek feedback uh, you how do you determine where to persevere or try a different approach that's a really good uh, really good question um, you know if I go back to your your last question there's there's a an overlap there I always knew where I wanted to be in a vague sort of way mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to do things that created value for society like I and I thought technology was a great way to do it. So I decided to go into software because I saw, this is going to sound funny, but when I heard about enterprise software for the first time, that's what made me go into software. Like mm-hmm. I, I taught myself to program when I was 13 because it was fun, mm-hmm. but I was I, I wanted to go into the sciences and to engineering and, and sort of build things. I wanted to focus on uh, power and, and uh, other sort of things. And then I realized that software actually had human value, and uh, and that got me super excited. So I went into uh, into software. So I, I made my career choice at that point because I had a, a talent for it, but there, it also connected to my interest in building sort of things that made the world better. And then when I started working, you know, there's you can you learn a lot every two years in life. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the ten thousand hour thing, but that's not exactly true. That's if you're going to make it into the orchestra or make it to the top of the charts. You get to 95% mastery of almost anything in about two years. Um, there's another study that talks about that. And I feel that's actually pretty true. Mm-hmm. Like, I really learned to program quite well in my first two years of programming. I learned how to sell quite well in two years of, of selling, marketing two years, um, you know, all these skill acquisition things. And I always kept at something to feel like I had maximized how much I could learn and grown. Um, always in that direction of, you know, being able to do something 
that was valuable. And also, like, the work I was doing was valuable because, you know, building engineering platforms that help build better products, uh, risk management, which helps save lives. All these things are, 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 you know, fabulously helpful. Mm -hmm. So I'm in service to, you know, improving things and and doing that. But also being able now to actually um, start something and create something of of more value. so then I finally, you know, I did go through this period, though, where it's like, okay, I'm, you know, almost 40, and mm-hmm. I've been learning and learning and learning, uh, but now all of a sudden, like, I wasn't really sure where I was going, because I finished the marketing bid, and then um, I actually left my job, and I was trying to decide if I wanted to go back in the tech or stay in marketing or what I was going to do, and I saw what was happening in the JavaScript yeah. world and, and decided to go all back into tech and went back to programming and everything. Yeah, it's pretty pretty incredible. But, I mean, you did have a, a sense of vision where it would let you that, that you wanted to create something uh, that, that, that delivers value. Uh, I mean, I f- feel like a lot of people uh, want to focus on impact, but also impact is a very vague word when, like, what is it, how do you measure impact when somebody works for a company? It's, it's pretty hard. Yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, there is... If we're good at a craft, and that that's always that has that has great impact because we're you know obviously uh, adding value, um, and then learning and, and sort of trying to do more interesting things and, and create things of, of uh, more impact. Did you have any any challenges that or failures that set you up for later success? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of uh, lots of different failures. Um, you know, this, this was the fourth company I started. The right. first three never got past one person. So, um, you know, I could have concluded that I wasn't particularly good at starting companies. But I learned a lot. And then I just sort of, when the opportunity came up again, I tried again. And um, But it was always, I was always comfortable doing it because it right. felt like it was in service to something other than my ego. But, mm-hmm. you know, I was trying to sort of, I just wanted to build something, create yeah. something, add value. Do you have any? Uh, do you follow any role models or uh, people that inspire you uh, at the moment? You know, for me, I find that it, I, I actually get a lot of value out of reading. Um, it inspires me. It keeps me thinking. It keeps me creative. And I find I do my best work uh, when I'm actually really um, curious and reading and learning because it, it gets uh, more ideas connecting and colliding. Um, so the, the big inspiration I had in the last year was uh, Ray Dalio, his book Principles. That's phenomenal. And uh, it completely blew my mind, like completely. Um, the way he described, you know, how he grew the company, you know, he worked at building this company, I think, initially for eight years, and then it all imploded, and he didn't even have money for a plane ticket. Mm-hmm. But he was so grounded in what his principles were and what he wanted to do. Um, you know, he wanted to work with interesting people, solve interesting people, uh, solve interesting problems, and um, you know, uh, support his his family. I think we're the three, and um, and he just the way you read it, it actually felt legitimate. He just it all blew up, and then he just got right back on the horse and kept doing it. And um, he was always looking to understand what would sort of make things better and continuously improve. And to your point, how do you communicate that in yeah. an organization? Yeah. So okay, it's like principles. That's that's really really like interesting 
and the way he described, you know, teams, everyone, like there's five core things you need to achieve a particular goal. Nobody has all those skills, but if you put the right combination of people together, you can create these outcomes. And he wrote it down in a very lucid and, and interesting manner. Yeah. Life principles, work principles, um, you know, some of the concepts that they applied there. And the one thing I loved was, um, you know, every time he said when I got stuck and I couldn't figure out how to get what I wanted, I would slow down and look at the way to maximize both. So there was this one point where he got yelled at uh, by his staff, mm-hmm. his senior staff, mm-hmm. like he was traumatizing everyone. Mm-hmm. They realized his intentions were good, but everyone else was getting a little sort of sketch, you know, um, skittish. And it's like, okay, I can have a world-class company that does what the company's meant to do, or I can have happy employees. <laughs> and uh, and it's like, that's, it's like it was an impossible dichotomy. Um, but then he thought about it, it and he thought about it and by formalizing the principles, um, he was able to move past that because now people understood the why behind things. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was clarity around why decisions were made and um, and that sort of let them move past that and scale. Yeah, it is, it's an incredible read for any anyone who builds the company or anybody who wants to uh, uh, look at uh, principles that are worth living by. Any other reads that you found uh, that maybe books that you keep coming back to? You mentioned a few, Steve Blank, um, Crossing the Chasm. Any other ones that were really fundamental for you? Uh, just doesn't have to be just business. So the the, uh, the first book that really inspired me on marketing was the 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing, which was by Al Reese and Jack Trout. Then I read Positioning, and uh, that was sort of my foundational sort of view of, of marketing. Um from a sales perspective, there's this small book that I read called Selling the Invisible by uh, Harry Beckwith. And it's a phenomenal book uh, on sort of the emotional aspect of selling. Um, you know, my favorite sales book uh, is is probably still Spin Selling. Yeah. And uh, that stands for Situation, I think, Problem, um, Impact, and... Uh, sort of need payoff or something like that. I yeah. can't remember the exact. Yeah, there's just some basic ones, right? But it's a brilliant articulation of, you know, how you build value in a consultative way in a uh, in a sales journey. Um, and it gets to such profound levels of clarity that uh, it, it creates a compelling offer. And uh, I, I applied that in, in a prior job in a go-to-market campaign, and mm-hmm. it worked amazingly well because it focused getting into a common truth with, you know, the person right. who had the problem. Uh, more recently, principles. Um, I like um, uh, Henry Mintzberg a lot. He has yeah, a book called right. Simply Managing, which mm-hmm. is a, a is a good uh, managing sort of book. It talks about community ship instead of leadership, so it was very right. aligned with, with Wrangell's sort of values mm-hmm. and, and purpose. More recently, uh, two people recommended The Culture Code to me, and I, I've read That's that. And that also blew my mind, right? It's, it's, there's a lot of overlap with principles in some respects because you're taking sort of the core purpose and you're breaking it into principles that foster continuous discussion around purpose. And that allows um, companies to scale and, and execute with a, uh, like as a high functioning team with much more impact. Yeah, and I believe David Cancel was super impressed with Daniel Pink, was it? Uh, I think there's another two books that it's a series. Yeah. Um, I haven't read To Sell as Human yet. That was, uh, but that looks very interesting. Um, 
I've read another one of his books as well. The um, the other the other uh, book recommendation that I took from David Cancel is the One Thing, mm. um, which is a great book on thinking about executive type leadership, because it's it's a hard thing. You you talked about growth and how do you yeah. change and how do you communicate. So thinking more about principles, um, vision, mission, and um, communicating that clearly so that there's a deep understanding of what we're trying to do and why. Um, you know, there's so many priorities um, that the way to execute them is sometimes sort of you can't see a clear path. And the, the one thing sort of is, is, a, is a pretty clear path you know, what's the one thing I can do today that will make everything else easier or not needed? And what's the highest leverage thing? So you and your role as a CEO or a uh, mm-hmm. functional leader, um, what is the thing that is going to move the needle? And um, that is a similar concept, I think, with OKRs, objectives and key results, because, again, you're, you're trying to focus on fewer things that are higher impact and that you're you're doing to a level of excellence as opposed to trying to do everything sort of largely suboptimally. There's a reason why um, I believe, I don't remember who was it, but somebody called product managers the CEO of their product. Yeah. Product managers, OKRs, and, and, and CEOs have some similar ways of looking at priorities or prioritizing things. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's, um, it's it's the sort of the, the multitude of, of different things that you have to synthesize, collate, and condense into something that's actually actionable. And yeah, I wanted to speak a little bit about uh, routines. Uh, I think you, you we, before we started recording, you mentioned you kind of changed the way that you you approach your morning routine or the way that you approach your day. Uh, what are some what is your morning routine, even a routine looks like right now? And um, what have you changed? Yeah, so um, it's one of those those fascinating things where everyone sort of knows what they probably should be doing, but it's hard to actually get around to doing it. So, you know, with uh, two years into Wrangle, I started um, exercising a lot more, and, and that was, was uh, had an amazing impact. Mm-hmm. Then I sort of fell off and, um, you know, get caught up in the day-to-day. And you sp- if you spend a lot of time on tactics, uh, particularly, uh, you mentioned there's so many different priorities. So as, a, as an executive leader, um, as a, you know, if you're focused on tactics, you're body and your brain and your entire being is under constant sort of stress because you're never able to just do things instinctually. Um, Most jobs, when you're actually working with a team on a project, on a paper, you can get into what they call flow, which is Mm -hmm. this ability to leverage the sort of the instincts and and the you know, it's 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 effortless yeah. because you're you're tapping this ability to see patterns and move through things much more effortlessly. Um, if you are out of flow, you're slogging. You're in the mud. You're in the trees. And they did a study where if they interrupted flow just through random sort of interruptions, it actually started to induce a state of minor psychosis in the people being studied. Mm. And if I think about that from a um, an organizational sort of perspective, that ability to find flow and to be able to um, not be constantly subjected to all of the different sort of influences is super important. Mm-hmm. 
one way of doing that is you've got to be able to break your, you know, sometimes you, you will be in the task, so you're not going to be always, you know, um, in working on the higher level concepts, mm-hmm. but um, you got to be able to break that chain. So that's where uh, cardio exercise is super important. So I came back from vacation. I took two weeks off, mm-hmm. and um, the vacation was a very relaxing one, which was a bit of a problem because it didn't really, I didn't disconnect as much as I could have. Whereas a really active vacation, you're you're sort of pulled completely out of work. So I came back and I didn't actually feel much better. Like I, mm. I still felt sort of worn down, and I hadn't been exercising a lot because I had a, a foot injury mm. um, earlier in the year. So I, I just sort of said, "What are all the things that I know?" Okay, I gotta do cardio, not yeah. cardio um, for weight loss or cardio, but cardio for brain health because that's been well proven now. Mm. Um, that cardio 20 minutes a day has a, a huge impact on all kinds of, of sort of uh, sort of brain health. And yeah. you, you think also clearer. Like if, mine, it was, yeah. if you run in the morning or do anything, any cardio in the morning, it's just amazing how like the feeling after. Yeah. Um, meditation. So I've done that here and there and uh, probably never more for 30 days. So I set up a whole morning routine where I committed to the routine as a whole. And so I flip my day. So, you know, I'm not coming home and then trying to chill out. I'm, I'm pre-chilling in the morning mm-hmm. and coming into work, like, really fresh and really clear and just ready to respond mindfully to things and not reactively to things. So I get up, I do um, 10 minutes of meditation, yep. 20 minutes of cardio, and uh, then I'll do three, uh, roughly three pages of writing. So to sort of just process and think and be creative. And then when I've done that, um, I find that's like I've completely reset myself. Every day feels like a, a like a, a really mm. fresh day, and I'm tracking how I'm feeling, and I'm looking at my sleep patterns, and um, they're holding up. Like I, I I've had probably a more consistent mood, energy, and focus. You know, after about three weeks of the routine that was you know it starts to accrue and so now i have this um practice in place and i'm on day 47 but it's actually been pretty Mm -hmm. pretty uh impactful for me anything you do in the evening or evening it's more of uh just uh, there's no set set uh, schedule for you so with the, the being more mindful during the day i i hit the day a lot harder um the other thing is they tell you you need to do recovery um, because if you're always working, you're just not going to be as productive. You're not going to be as creative. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to have the discipline to do that. But I find that by doing the morning discipline, it also gives me the end of the day discipline to like be done. And so I actually, so I'm, I go home. I spend time with the kids. I'm not thinking about work. Um, so I'm making more conscious choices with more intention, and uh, that means that I'm actually getting more benefit out of my evenings. But if I lose my evening for some reason, like I go to an event or I, uh, I find I'm still the next morning, I'm taking you know my time in the morning to uh, reset. The other aspect of it is like I always feel really, really guilty about not spending enough time with my kids and my family and my wife and my friends because uh, building a company is a lot of work. Um, so then I don't actually ever focus on myself exactly because I always feel guilty but nobody's up in the morning anyway. So like I actually focus on, you know, my personal health and um, then in the evenings I can be fully attentive to them and it's, I've got balance now. So, you know, I got myself in the morning, I've got wrangle during the day and I got my family in the evening 
and I find that I'm able to maintain <coughs> maintain a real complete focus on all three of them, and that's been um, also a, a really uplifting uh, impact. Absolutely. Uh, one of the last questions uh, I wanted to ask you: What was the one of the best or the most worthwhile investments you've ever made? In what respect? It could be anything. It could be financially, it could be professionally, or it could be personally. I'd say if I were to say think about you know what might be slightly counterintuitive is um, is in, in investing in community, mm-hmm. right? Um, everything we do. We published, we built Angular training, and we made it Creative Commons. Um, we publish our blog posts, you know, whatever we learn. Yeah. If uh, if someone's starting a consulting company, so someone uh, wanted to start a React consulting mm-hmm. company, and he came over, and I shared everything that we did and how we did it and why we right. did it. And, um, you know, maybe we have another competitor now. I'm not really sure. Uh, we, we <laughs> This was contentious inter- internally. Mm-hmm. I insisted that we do training for whoever wants it, even competitors. And that's sort of uh, counterintuitive for a Absolutely. lot of people. So um, I just said, yeah, we'll, we'll do training uh, for whoever wants it because it's, again, if you're focused on value and you're, you're, you learn more and you can contribute more and you can add more value back. Um, so that investment in community, I think, is the thing that's been um, – I'm proudest of because it allows us to do good stuff, which and good work. It helps other people, and it's actually also uh, sound strategically. Nick, what is that? What's the impact? Would you like to have on the world with what you're doing right now and where you're going forward? So I'm I'm a I'm a digital optimist. Um, yeah, I, I think you know the the more value we can sort of create through. Um, science and technology and wisdom and learning and and you know philosophy and psychology and everything that we understand um, we can make the world a, a better place uh, particularly in a world that's getting resource constrained and you have environmental warming and you have all these sort of challenges um, you have social challenges governance challenges access to education um, you know all those things have improved a fair bit but there's still a lot that we can improve and, and the more we can solve um, challenges uh, by accelerating and, and, and enabling human creativity because I think everything's mm-hmm. all about human creativity right. you know there's uh, things are all being created by people so it is human centric even if it's technology like I, I don't like the thought that technology is impersonal it's like people don't think books are impersonal but they used to at one point because they weren't oral traditions and right. but it's all about human creativity and and, and sort of Absolutely. solving problems as a community for the welfare and best of, of everyone who you know and for every creature on the planet um so that's my goal is to just really get as good as i can at my craft and build wrangle into a incredibly um sort of impactful sort of a company that's contributing to mm-hmm. building digital solutions that make the world a better, more effective place uh, that creates longer, happier, healthier lives. And if we share that with the world and we don't have a competitive differentiator anymore and we manage to actually add value, um, then that's a great win as well. Like I'm super proud of everyone who's worked for Wrangle who no longer works here, who's brought what they've learned to other companies and to the Toronto tech community in general. Um, so that's that's sort of it, doing yeah. what I do best to, to create 
the most value I can while. Where's everybody find can find you online, Nick? Where can they find me online? Yeah. I'm pretty bad when it comes to social media <laughs> after all of that. Probably LinkedIn is probably where I do most of my uh, digital online interaction and collaboration with people. Well, Nick, it was an absolute pleasure. Thanks a lot for sharing your thoughts on, on uh, community, on the company, and uh, your vision for the life. All right. Thanks. Thanks.